By the way, this is a this is a beautiful little book. I'm sure many of you have read it many times, but I would encourage you to study it carefully. You see, one of the reasons this book was written was because there was at that time what was known as the Colossian heresy, which meant that there was some false teaching that was creeping into the Colossian church. And so Paul seeks to set it all straight. And it's very interesting when you go back and look at what the elements of that heresy were and, and see how similar they are to elements that we have today. Let me, let me point out just a few of them to you. There was one of the things was ceremonialism. Now it's amazing. I'm not thinking of any one particular religious group, but it is amazing how much ceremony has crept into the so-called worship of Jesus Christ. We have to do things in a certain way, and we have to sing songs in a certain way, and if we're not careful, we'll fall into some of that right here at Calvary Chapel. We've got to be careful not to get into, into such patterns that it becomes a ceremony. It can happen. It can happen to you and to me. And we come and we sit and for 20 or 25 minutes, we sing certain choruses, and it's almost like a ceremony. But it loses the vitality of a recognition of the person of Jesus Christ, and that's what was happening back here. They were, they were adding all kinds of ceremonies because they thought that was, that was important to worship. And so Paul seeks to set that straight, and we'll see how he does that in just a minute. Another thing that, another thing that was part of this heresy was what we would call today asceticism. Now, asceticism, it, it has all kinds of forms. In some places, people cut themselves uh, for, for the sake of their gods, and they do all kinds of foolish things to their bodies. But the main thing is this. The main thing about asceticism is making demands of yourself beyond those that God really asks for. And it's interesting. In my counseling, I find a lot of Christian people caught in that very thing. See, discipline is a great thing. I, I really believe that we need more discipline and self-control in our lives. The Bible reminds us a person without self-control is like a city without walls and that is broken into by the enemy. So self-control is very, very important and, and discipline is very important. The problem is discipline is taken by the enemy and twisted a little tiny bit and it becomes legalism very quickly. And many times I talk with people who feel that somehow their spiritual life has gone haywire because they're not doing this and this and this the way they used to do it. They have become so ingrained in a pattern of discipline that somehow that has become more important than the worshiping of the person. That can happen to us. And that was happening back here. There was, there was a legalism that was setting in and an asceticism where people were uh, punishing themselves, literally, in an effort to please God. The third thing that, uh, that I know about this particular heresy that was going on back there, just from the reading I've done, was that there was a lot of angel worship. Now, 
that can be the worship of any other beings, not just angels, but any other beings apart from Jesus. And that's going on in our society, as you know, in many circles. Some people worship the founder of their, of their church. Others worship other beings. It can happen to us. Anytime, anytime, anything or anyone moves in and takes the primary place that only Jesus should have, we're going to be in trouble. And this was happening. This was part of that heresy. And then just one last thing. There was a tremendous reliance on human wisdom and tradition. Human wisdom and tradition. And it's remarkable how much that is in our society today, isn't it? Philosophers, psychologists, telling us all kinds of things that are not biblically based. They sound good, and they seem to make sense, but they are not biblically based. Let me give you this one quick illustration that I presented to a group yesterday morning. We confuse desires and needs. And, and desires become, in our minds, needs. I desire that someone treat me in a certain way. And as I think about that and allow it to go on in my mind long enough, all of a sudden that translates itself into a need. And I say, I need that relationship. I need for that person to treat me in that way, my husband or my wife or my children or my parents, whoever that might be. And that, that thing that was a desire has now become a need. And the problem is, it's a need to serve me. You see, all that Jesus teaches us is that we are to serve others. And we are to be willing to die to our own desires. If any man will come after me, finish it with me. Let him take up his cross daily and follow me. Let him deny himself, I missed that part, and take up his cross daily and follow me. And that little phrase, deny himself, means to give up all rights to myself. Well, this was all part of what Paul was trying to overcome in this beautiful little book. But there was something else. The purpose of the book, because of all of this that I've just mentioned, the purpose of the book was the exaltation of Christ. And I want you to look at something with me. Look at, at chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. And if you ever want a time of pure, simple, delightful worship, read this passage over and over again. Notice what it says. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created by him and for him. 
and he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he also is the head of the body, the church. And he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself might come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven, and although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil needs, deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach, if indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. What a beautiful presentation of who the Lord Jesus Christ is. His authority, his dominion, his power, that he holds everything together. Things happen according to their plan, the Father and the Son and the Spirit. Jesus is the one that we exalt, that we glorify. And, and Paul is helping us do that in this passage. One other thing before we start our little study. These are just some background things to this book. If you pray, and I hope most of you do, if you pray in an intercessory way, that is praying for somebody else, another believer, whether someone you know or someone who is serving far away and whose name you've heard and you want to pray for them, let me suggest that there is a beautiful model for intercession right here in this chapter. First chapter, verses 9 through 11. Colossians 1, 9 through 11. For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. I encourage you to read that prayer. Read it verbatim. Just take it and lay it before the Lord and pray that for people that you're praying for. Tremendous model of intercessory prayer. Now let's see what we can learn about this concept of being all that we can be, as Paul wants us to see this. Look at chapter 2 now, if you will. And we're going to just take two verses out of this entire book and try to understand them a little bit. Verses 6 and 7. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. 
having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. In these two little short verses, Paul is laying for you and for me a standard of all that we can be in the Lord Jesus Christ. He starts out by saying that our living, the way we behave, should continue in the spirit or the attitude that we had and that we experienced when we came to know Jesus Christ as our personal Savior. Just as you received him, he says, walk, behave, live in him. Now, think with me a moment. What are some of the characteristics that we experienced when we came to know Jesus Christ? Now, obviously, if you haven't come to know Christ, you wouldn't know this. And tonight would be a wonderful time for you to make that, that decision and take that step. But those of you who know him, think with me a moment. And I'm going to, I'm going to mention some things. And I'm sure it won't cover everything. But perhaps it will help us understand something of what Paul was trying to say when he, when he reminds us to continue to walk in the same way that we, that we experienced that initial encounter with Jesus Christ. I think, first of all, we have to admit that we came to Christ because we sensed a need. Wouldn't you say that's true? A need. And he wants us to continue in the awareness of that need. Look at John 15, 5. Many of you know it. He says that if we don't abide in him and, and so on, we can't bear much fruit. But then in the fifth verse, he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Who, he who abides in me, he bears much fruit. For what? Apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. A nice big zero. Nothing. That's how it was when I came to Christ. I remember as a young man, I'd, I had never heard the gospel until I was uh, 11 years old, 11 and a half. And uh, it happened in a little mission in East Los Angeles. We moved there from here. We grew up here in, in Albuquerque. And because of the Depression, we had to move to Los Angeles. My dad couldn't find work here. And uh, my sisters began attending a little mission there in East Los Angeles. My dad was very unhappy about that. And uh, he called them all sorts of interesting names. But they stuck with it. Both of the girls, both of my sisters, older than I, stuck with it. And eventually they received the Lord. And uh, then they told me about this club that they had uh, on Thursday afternoon called the Sunbeam Club. And uh, I found out they served cookies and punch, free. And, uh, you know, during the Depression, that was pretty special. We, we couldn't afford that kind of stuff. So I thought, man, this is a good deal. So I started going there, and uh, mostly for the cookies and punch. But I heard for the first time uh, something about the gospel. And little by little, 
I began to understand it. And one day, I was about 13 then, I was in my cousin's home. She was in the kitchen peeling potatoes. And she said, a very spiritual setting, you understand, okay, right there. And she turned to me and she said, George, don't you think you need to receive Jesus? And I said, yeah, I do. But no one had ever asked me that. I'd been going to that little mission and kind of wandering around there and going to classes and all, but no one had ever asked me that particular question, and I knew I needed that. And so we went in and knelt down by her couch, and I remember that very clearly, and I received the Lord. But there was a sense of need. Now, my friends, God help us never to allow ourselves to get beyond that in our Christian life. We need the continual work of the Holy Spirit. We need to choose to allow him to control us day after day. We need him to empower us in order to serve him, to enable us to do what he wants us to do. We are people who are needy. Don't ever forget that. And Paul says in the same way, when you recognize that need for forgiveness and cleansing, and you came to Jesus Christ and accepted him as your personal Savior, don't forget that. In that same way, you walk, behave as believers, as followers of Jesus Christ, aware, aware of the fact that without him, we can do nothing. I think another thing that comes to my mind when I think of walking in the same way that I experienced that early encounter with Jesus Christ, and that is a sense of unworthiness. Unworthiness. You remember Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6? It says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and his glory filled the temple. And then he says a few verses later, And I saw myself. And he said, I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And then God cleansed him, you remember. And then he was able to say, here am I, send me. But that sense of unworthiness, none of us deserves the grace, the blessings, the mercy, the goodness that God pours on us. And it ought to evoke in us a continual recognition of his goodness, that God is so good to you and to me every day. Do you know, <clears throat> I'm convinced that one of the most meaningful ways for people to overcome depression is to develop a spirit of thanksgiving. To just to, to, to begin thanking God for all that we have. Philippians 4.8 is a terrific verse. And if you happen to have a living New Testament or a living Bible, I recommend that you look at it in that particular version, simply because they invert. They don't change, but they invert the sequence, and it makes a lot more sense to me. It says this, Fix your thoughts on what is true and good and right. Think about things that are pure and lovely, and the fine good things in others. 
Think about all you can praise God for and be glad about. A spirit of recognition of my unworthiness that leads me to a, a spirit of, of gratitude that God has graciously lifted me out of the sin and put me on the way to follow him and to serve him. A third thing that comes to my mind when we think in terms of walking as we were when we received Christ, and that's a sense of need of continual cleansing. I don't know about you, but I know my own heart and the society in which I live and the responses that I have at times and the thoughts that I have, there's a continual need for cleansing. That's what we sensed when we came to Jesus. We wanted forgiveness for our sins. We wanted to be cleansed. We wanted the guilt to be removed. And he did that because that's what he promises to do. And Paul says, with that same attitude, you keep on walking. In the awareness of a continual need for cleansing. You all know this one, at least many of you do. Quote it with me. 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Isn't that great? Isn't it? Come on. Goodness. I mean, that's right. That is right. That's the kind of thing we should get excited about. That cleansing is available to us continually because we need it continually. Thank God for his blood, the blood of his son, who cleanses us continually. What a wonderful thing. Well, just one or two more here. I, I just, this is just something that, that I, I'm doing a study in Colossians, okay? And this is just part of a study I've been doing. It's not a fancy message or anything. I just wanted to share this with you tonight. What is another, another experience that we had when we came to Jesus back there and received him as our personal Savior? Well, let me suggest another one. An awareness of the fact that faith is basic to our walking with God. Now, we know that. But honestly, ask yourself, ask yourself, how active is your faith? How far are you willing to believe God for things in your life, for your life? Hebrews 11.6 says this, Without faith, it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Let me change the wording just a little bit. If we want to have fellowship with God, we want to come to God and have fellowship with God, he says there are two things that we must believe. One, that he is who he claims to be and that he will do what he promised to do. Now, do we really believe that? Numbers 23, 19 says this, God is not a man that he should lie, nor the Son of Man 
that he should repent? Has he said, and will he not do it? And has he spoken, and will he not make it good? Do I really believe? Do I really believe that that is who God is, and that he will do that in my life? Well, back there when I received Christ as my Savior, I, I had the faith to believe that he would forgive me just as he promised and give me eternal life. Paul says that same faith, that same, that same simple, basic faith must be in our continual walking with him. You see, it's possible as we go along in our walk with the Lord, and I've known him now for... 53 years. When I was 13, I received him, and now you know how old I am. And you thought I was older than that, I know, but that's all right. And through these years, by the grace of God, he's been very good, and I've had the privilege of studying, and, 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 and God has ministered to my heart. But do you know, I never, I never want to lose the fact that faith is the primary ingredient to my walking with him and pleasing him. That's what he said. To believe him. To believe him. Even when things start falling apart, at least they look like they're falling apart. To believe that God is in control, even when it doesn't look like it. That's what it means. God says about himself in Isaiah 14, 27, the Lord of hosts has purpose. And who will change it? And his hand is stretched out, and who will turn it back? He's working out his purpose and his plan. Now, can I really believe that and rest in that and be at peace in it, even when I lose my job, even when I'm stricken with some illness, even when a loved one is removed, even when a loved one is damaged and hurt by someone else, can I believe him? Can I really believe that God is in control? Or do I get to the place where I say, well, that time God wasn't looking. They caught him when he was looking the other way. Never, never. I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They're plans for your welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a hope. That's Jeremiah 29, 11. So he wants us to have that same basic faith that we had at the beginning. Now, let's go on, because I want us to see verse 7 very quickly now. There are, there are four or five things that he says in verse 7 that are all important. He says, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. I want to take these words and, and do a little bit of, of study on them with you. The word rooted is a word in the, in the original language that has the connotation of a completed action, a completed action. It's in the perfect tense. 
It's been done. Nothing can be added to it. And when we come to Jesus Christ and receive him as our personal Savior, we are rooted in him. It's like taking a plant, and, and, and some of you women do this and know more about it than I do, but you save the root and, you, and then you put the root in and, and you, you get it all set in the right kind of soil, hoping and expecting it to grow. The root is there. You don't go back and check it and pull it out every two or three days to see if it's doing something. You know, it's done. The rooting process is done. And when, when we come to Jesus, we are placed into the body of Jesus Christ, in the family of God. We are rooted in him. It's done. It's not something that can come and go. Now, you may not be there yet. As I said earlier, this is a good night to do it. To be rooted in the Lord Jesus Christ. The reason, the reason we can be assured of this is that he has told us we become grafted into him like a plant is grafted into the main stalk. And once we're there, we are part of that plant. We are part of that body. It's a completed act. It's good to know that. It's good to know that there is something that we can fix our confidence in, in a society of relativistic truth. The absolutes of the Word of God that tell us we belong to Jesus. Now I belong to Jesus. Not for the years of time alone, but for eternity, says the song. I belong to Jesus. I'm rooted in Jesus. It's a completed act. Ephesians 4.15, just turn back a page or two from here. 4.14, excuse me, says, As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. Because we are now rooted. We don't have to be uh, victims of a lot of the false teaching and a lot of the false emphases that there are around us. We have been placed in Christ. And as long as we continue doing what we have been talking about and what we will see next, we will not be moved by these winds of doctrine and error. The second thing he says is that we are being built up. Being built up. Now, this is in a different tense. This is in what is known as the present. It's a continuing action. You aren't just built up and then it's taken care of. We are being continually built up. That's what God wants, at least. Now, the way we do that, listen carefully, the way this happens is through honest application and obedience to the Word of God. There is no other way that we can be built up. I don't care how many <clears throat> emotional experiences you might have, how good some things feel at certain times, Apart from obedience to the scriptures, you will not be 
built up. Let me give you an illustration. Take your Bibles, if you have one, and I want you to just hold them with your thumb and your little finger like that. Everybody that's got one, do that, will you? Don't be afraid. Okay, now, ask the person next to you to pull that out of your hand and try as hard as you can to hold it, okay? Ask them to pull it out of your hand. Try as hard as you can to hold it. Okay. All right. Now, let me tell you what I'm doing. We're going to use our hand as an illustration of how we apply the Word of God. Okay? Now, this thumb is going to be called meditation. Okay? That's meditation. Now, this finger, the little one that you just tried, that's hearing the word. Hearing the word. It, it works. It helps. You can hold some things with it. But there's not much strength there. And yet, my friends, that's what too many of us do. We just hear the word. And it's good that we have good teaching here. The pastors that are here that teach you through the week and skip on Sundays give good teaching. But if all we're doing is hearing, that's all the strength we have. We won't be built up just by hearing. The next finger, what do you think that's called? Well, the next one is called reading. Reading. And that's good. We ought to be reading the Scriptures. The Bible tells us that. Now, when you add that to hearing, you get a little more strength. Then it's, you can hold it a little bit better. You've got, you've got hearing and reading. And what do you suppose this one is? Studying. We're still talking about how, how to appropriate the Word of God. Study it. Take time to do cross-references, to look up verses in the margins, to, to do word studies, whatever you enjoy doing. But study it. Don't just read it casually. Stop and, and think about it. Now, notice something. None of these fingers can do a whole lot by themselves. If... if if the thumb is not there, it's pretty hard to do much with those, just, just those. You can do something, but it's not easy. You can't write very well. It, uh, some people have to do that, but it's not easy. So for all of those, whether it's hearing or reading or studying, you need the thumb, the meditation. Meditating on what you hear, meditating on what you read, meditating on what you study. Now, what do you suppose this one is? Memorizing. And do you know what? That's one of the strongest fingers in your hand. It's not this finger that's the strongest. It's this one. That finger can hold more than this one by itself. 
Memorizing. Memorizing. Okay, now let's, let's go through them again. You name them for me. Hearing. Okay. Reading. Studying. And meditate. And when we have all of those going, we've got a grip on the scripture. That's, that's how we are built up. Built up with the Word of God through application of the Scripture. Notice what the Bible says. Acts 20, 32. Acts 20, 32. Paul says to the Ephesian elders as he's leaving, And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to what? Build you up and to give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. The word is able to build you up. And that's why Peter says, in 1 Peter 2, chapter 2, verse 2, he says, As newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that you may be built up, that you may grow, it's the word of God that has that power as the Spirit of God uses the word of God to teach us. Jesus said, when he comes, he will guide you into all truth, and he will teach you all things. So the Spirit of God, using the Word of God, is how we are built up. Quickly, let's look at the other things. Notice what it says. It says, be built up in him. Not just in knowledge. Not just in accumulating information, even biblical information but we're to be built up in the Lord Jesus, learning to know him better through the scriptures. Second Peter 3.18 says, Grow in grace and in the knowledge of Christ Jesus. Grow in the knowledge of Christ Jesus. It's something we should be doing all our lives, learning to know him better, who he is, and what he's promised. Grow in him. Paul said in Philippians 3.10, you remember that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering being made conformable to his death. In fact, earlier than that, he said, I count all things, everything, as loss, as nothing, for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. To learn to know him, really know him. And he reveals himself through the word. In fact, do you remember what he promised in John 14, 21? He says, he that hath my commandments and keeps them, he it is that loves me. And he that loves me will be loved of my father, and I will love him. And notice, and I will reveal myself to him. I will reveal myself to him. He wants to reveal himself. He wants us to learn to know him. But it comes through obedience to the word. So we're to grow in him. 
And then these last two things as we close. It says strengthened there in Colossians 2. Here we are. Established in your faith or strengthened in your faith. That's what the word means. To be, to be strengthened, to be established, to be confirmed in your faith. By the way, this is also a present tense word. That means it's something that's going on all the time. Continually. We are being more and more established or strengthened or confirmed in what we believe as we study the Scriptures, as we allow the Spirit of God to use us. It requires, obviously, from me and from you, a teachable spirit, allowing the Spirit of God to teach me through anybody that He wants, for them to point things out that they observe in my life. It means I have to be willing to be somewhat transparent, to allow the Spirit of God to help me be strengthened and, and, and grow in this area. I think also this happens, this kind of action, this strengthening and establishing and so on, confirming, takes place most effectively in a small group fellowship where we establish a spiritual uh, accountability. And by that I simply mean that I'm willing for you to point out things in my life and you ask me to do the same thing and together we grow. That's what I mean by accountability. That spiritual one another ministry in a small group. If you're not part of a kinship group yet, I would encourage you to seriously think about that. That's where a lot of this will take place. This that we're talking about right here. Then this last thing. We're to be strengthened in the faith. That is to say, in our confidence in God. That's what should happen. Anytime we come away from the Scriptures, anytime we come away from having read it and studied it and meditated on it, or anytime we commit a, word, a, a part of the Bible, a verse to our, to our memory, or a section of the Bible to memory, it should increase our faith in God, strengthen, deepen our conviction regarding who God is and what He promises to do what we believe and why we believe it. And then he says this last thing. After all is done, we're to have a spirit of gratitude, overflowing, overflowing with gratitude. The word that's used gives the impression of a river that overflows its banks. Overflowing. And I said earlier, and I repeat again, I believe that it's one of the most therapeutic experiences that you and I can have that will remove discouragement, despondency that can lead to depression. A spirit of thanksgiving. Two verses to close. Ephesians 5.20 is one of them. Ephesians 5.20 it says, always giving thanks for all things. Listen to that. Always giving thanks 
for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. To God, even the Father, always giving thanks for all things. And Ephesians 5, or rather, 1 Thessalonians 5.18 says, In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Fix your thoughts on what is true and good and right. It's so good to remember that in all of these admonitions where we are asked to be all that we can be, we're not doing it alone. We're not alone. He has sent the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, to activate and fulfill all of these things in our life. And so he says in Philippians 2, 12, and 13, you work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. You take responsibility for what you should do. These things that we've looked at tonight, you take responsibility to put them into practice. Then in verse 13 he says, because God is at work in you. God is at work in you to will and to do of his good pleasure. But my friends, remember, God cannot do what he wants in you and in me until we take that first step of doing what he tells us, working out our own salvation with fear and trembling, taking responsibility for that which we understand. And then God says he will work in us to will and do of his good pleasure. Thank you very much for your attention and for being patient with my voice. I appreciate that. Let's pray. Lord God, I'm sure that any of us here tonight who know the Lord Jesus Christ as our personal Savior want to accept this admonition from Paul to walk in the way that we experience the reality of salvation and to put into practice these areas of, uh, of encouragement and admonition that we are rooted and we should be built up and established and, 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 our, and, and growing in our faith and with a spirit of gratitude. Lord, we want that, I'm sure. And, and some of us are struggling with some things, and, and it's hard for us to put some things down. And I just pray that you would work by your Holy Spirit in the life of each one and help us to be willing tonight to take a step, whatever step is necessary in our lives. I don't know what those are. But to take a step that will allow your Holy Spirit to accomplish these objectives in us. And as we've talked about the ways in which we can appropriate the Word of God through hearing it and reading it and studying it and memorizing it and meditating on it, Lord God, help us to increase our understanding of the Scripture and to be established through the Word of God. We thank you for this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, it may be that there's someone here tonight, you've been hearing all this, and you have to...